We're going to move on from Jeremiah, not that there isn't a lot more we can talk about, but we're going to get into Ezekiel and kind of got just stuck on one chapter. Okay, so we're going to do Ezekiel chapter one this time. And remember, it's always helpful to know where we're at. Okay, so we're in the time here of the Babylonian captivity of Jerusalem. We started with Jeremiah, kind of told the whole story of what happened. We've quoted Habakkuk as someone relevant here to this period of time. Uh, after we talk about Ezekiel, we'll talk about Daniel. Okay, so remember in these three invasions here, Ezekiel, uh, that he writes from uh, Babylon. Okay, so the book opens up. On the fifth day of the fourth month of the 30th year, I, Ezekiel the priest, was living with the Jewish exiles by the Chibar River in Babylonia. It was the fifth year since King Jehoiachin had been taken into exile. So we just go back here, there's King Jehoiachin. So we're, we're coming right up here to the very end for Jerusalem. Okay, so this was 593 BC. And find it also kind of interesting that of these three people that we're gonna talk about, Jeremiah, um, Ezekiel, and now Daniel, these were all young men at the time that uh, God called them. Uh, Jeremiah, 19 or 20, um, Ezekiel here is 25, Daniel was young when he was taken out, so, uh, you know, these men had a, uh, were called at an early age and had a long ministry. So Ezekiel was 25, and most of, uh, Ezekiel is really easy to put together if you want to do something chronologically, because the chapters, of course, those are not uh, inspired, those are added much, much later, but the, the sections of Ezekiel often open up like this, on the fifth day, fourth month, thirtieth year. Uh, very specific. Okay, and so his last uh, message here was in, written in 571 BC. So we've got 22 years uh, worth of stories and, and things that Ezekiel contributed. Okay, I just found this comment here in, in a study Bible helpful. It's kind of a big picture of Ezekiel. That Ezekiel's purpose is to declare the holy character of God and to extol his glory. Uh, a phrase that comes up again and again in Ezekiel, which we will talk about um, here in a week or two, uh, is God's holy name. Over and over in Ezekiel. And, and name, remember in the Bible, means so much more than just the person's name. Okay, it encompasses the person, the character. And so much of uh, what Ezekiel talks about has to do directly with God's character. But also his message is much like that of John in the book of Revelation, full of imagery and symbolism. Okay, a lot of uh, apocalyptic kind of writing. Okay, we get a sense of that here in the first chapter of Ezekiel. So um, as we, I'm just going to read the first chapter of Ezekiel. And I, I challenge you just to try to build an image in your mind of what it is that Ezekiel is describing. Okay, it's kind of difficult, but try to, try to imagine what he's talking about here. The sky opened, and I saw a vision of God. There in Babylonia, beside the Chibar River, I heard the Lord speak to me, and I felt his power. I looked up and saw a windstorm coming from the north. Lightning was flashing from a huge cloud, and the sky around it was glowing. Where the lightning was flashing, something shone like bronze. At the center of the storm, I saw what looked like four living creatures in human form, but each of them had four faces and four wings. Okay? Not too difficult so far, but, but here's where it becomes a challenge. Their legs were straight, and they had hoofs like those of a bull. They shone like polished bronze. In addition to their four faces and four wings, they each had four human hands, one under each wing. 
Two wings of each creature were spread out so that the creatures formed a square with their wingtips touching. When they moved, they moved as a group without turning their bodies. Each living creature had four different faces, a human face in front, a lion's face at the right, a bull's face at the left, and an eagle's face at the back. Two wings of each creature were raised, so they touched the tips of the wings of the creatures next to it, and their other two wings were folded against their bodies. Each creature faced in all four directions, and so the group could go wherever they wished without having to turn. Among the creatures, there was something that looked like a blazing torch, constantly moving. The fire would blaze up and shoot out flashes of lightning. The creatures themselves darted back and forth with the speed of lightning. As I was looking at the four creatures, I saw four wheels touching the ground, one beside each of them. All four wheels were alike. Each one shone like a precious stone, and each had another wheel intersecting it at right angles so that the wheels could move in any of the four directions. The rims of the wheels were covered with eyes. Whenever the creatures moved, the wheels moved with them, and if the creatures rose up from the earth, so did the wheels. The creatures went wherever they wished, and the wheels did exactly what the creatures did because the creatures controlled them. So every time the creatures moved or stopped or rose in the air, the wheels did exactly the same. Above the heads of the creatures, there was something that looked like a dome made of dazzling crystal. And there under the dome stood the creatures, each stretching out two wings toward the ones next to it and covering its body with the other two wings. And I heard the noise of their wings made in flight. It sounded like the roar of the sea, like the noise of a huge army, like the voice of Almighty God. And when they stopped flying, they folded their wings, but there was still a sound coming from above the dome over their heads. Above the dome, there was something that looked like a throne made of sapphire. And sitting on the throne was a figure. Okay, so maybe we'll stop there. Okay, so it'd be interesting to know. We were talking about MRI with the second year students. What, what's going on in your visual part of your brain here? How, how do each one of you um, imagine this? Okay, but we'll, we'll come back to that. And I'm actually going to ask for your input because uh, I'm not going to go through each one of these symbols and say, this is what this means, this is what that means. But uh, what, what's our big picture of this? But what would you imagine here? Now we're kind of, it would seem to be building up here, kind of a climax here. We've got a throne. There's someone above all of this. Okay, and what would you anticipate that uh, this would look like? And I found it just kind of surprising reading on that the figure looked like a human being, looked like a man. There are different ways of uh, uh, here, but it's always, it looks human up there. That kind of surprising? Is God a human being? Uh, why is it a human being that's up there? And the figure seemed to be shining like bronze in the middle of a fire. It shone all over with a bright light that had in it all the colors of the rainbow. And this was the dazzling light which shows the presence of the Lord. And when I saw this, notice when he saw this, the individual up there, the rainbow, and all of this, when I saw this, I fell face downward on the ground, and then I heard a voice. And, and we'll read on a little bit from there in, in just a minute. But, um, you know, what, what in the world are we supposed to get from this? If you miss the interpretation of Ezekiel 1, how much, uh, how much will be lost uh, in life? Uh, what are we supposed to get out of this? So there are lots of different images. I could never really find a good picture um, here, but some people have tried to paint whatever it was. 
that Ezekiel saw. So here's some questions that, that come to mind, and then maybe you can help here. Is this a literal depiction of heavenly realities? Okay, is this what God looks like? Um, are there actually individuals with four different faces and wheels within wheels? Is this, is this a reality? We'll get there. This is what we'll see someday. Is this symbolic of something? And if it's symbolic, symbolic of what? Um, is this meant to convey a meaning to Ezekiel and to the people of that time? And if so, what, what meaning would you get out of this? Okay, and uh, does it have a meaning for us? You don't want to go out of limb on something like this, and it seems like maybe that's why a lot of people just have stayed away from this, being very specific. Well, I can tell you, again, Google is not, not the best way here to, to do theology, but uh, I went through about 10 pages of uh, Google just to see you know, what, what some individuals have written. And, and you know, one of the most popular is that this is a UFO. And uh, there's a lot written about that, actually, that Ezekiel saw a UFO. And here's the spaceship, and then these little beans here with the wheels within the wheels. And some people are really uh, quite into that, about the UFO um, theory. Well, can we do a little better than that? There, there are some others. Uh, I was just trying to find the pictures here last minute. Some people have gone through and taken every chapter of the Bible and put it in a spoke in the wheel and try to construct something. So there's some, lots of bizarre ways of doing this. Um, but I think we shouldn't miss the, the end of the description here, where Ezekiel would say, I realized I was seeing the brightness of the Lord's glory. And how many times, just as we're reading that, did Ezekiel say, you know what, it sort of appeared like, had the appearance of, kind of looked like this, not being real specific, but kind of uh, a little bit vague. You know, he's kind of struggling to convey what he's seen. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of God, and the sight was like the glory of Yahweh. So in the end, he realizes he's, he's seeing the glory of God, and it's depicted in, in, in all of these different ways. So before just trying to, to answer this question here, uh, remember the setting is always so helpful. And the setting is very, very bleak. Remember, the people are depressed, discouraged. All of these people, Habakkuk, Jeremiah, everyone's questioning God. What are you doing? You don't seem to be doing anything. Okay, and so just to, the Lamentations was written by Jeremiah. And it ends with, have you rejected us forever? Is there no limit to your anger? Okay, and I'm quoting this out of context. Oh, no, I'll do this here on the next slide. But here in Ezekiel, um, you know, later on in the vision, uh, we go down to the temple and we see this. what's going on here with the people. And God would say, mortal man, do you see what the Israelite leaders are doing in secret? They are all worshiping in a room full of images. Their excuse is the Lord doesn't see us. He has abandoned the country. So the mindset is, is God has left. He obviously didn't help them from their perspective with the Babylonians, and so God does not seem involved. Seems to have completely rejected his people. Okay, that's where they're coming from. And so again, the mindset is, you know, everything is chaos. Okay, there was the Assyrian captivity, now the Babylonian captivity, and uh, you know, world is, is just uh, completely chaos. Here's the verse I'm taking out of context, Psalm 77. What hurts me most is this, that God is no longer powerful. Now, is God no longer powerful? No, it, it had the appearance, and the psalmist here wrote what he felt. This is why we, you know, again, pluck a verse like that to prove that God is not powerful. Of course not. But um, 
Again, this was how the psalmist felt, and this is how the people felt in that time. And God does not seem involved. Okay, now, uh, if this is the mindset, is this vision somehow helpful for people that feel that God is not involved, that God is not powerful, that God is, uh, you know, the world is just a chaotic mess? And um, it's interesting, but uh, this image comes back in Ezekiel 9 and 10. Same thing. And I'm just going to make one point from this. So Ezekiel saw again, he looked at the dome over the heads of the living creatures, and above them was something that seemed to be a throne made of sapphire. Same thing. And God said to the man wearing linen clothes, now we've got another individual who seems to be underneath all of this, go between the wheels under the creatures and fill your hands with burning coals and then scatter the coals over the city. So maybe to answer the first question here, is, is God involved? Well, the vision is, is it you know, moves on through Ezekiel. Um, it would seem God is involved. Okay, he's down there he's scattering coals all over the place. Uh, God does seem involved. Is everything chaos? Does the image project uh, the heavenly, what's going on up there is a chaotic mess? I mean, doesn't this seem very uh, orderly here? How they're moving, the wheels within the wheels. You very much projects an image of um, strength and stability. Is God not powerful? Well, that, that vision certainly makes God out to, to be powerful. So I, I think this is meant in a, in a very big picture sense to describe that God is involved. Yes, he's still powerful and still interested in the people. Maybe we could just make that uh, very basic claim um, about the vision. Now, another very important question. Uh, who is God on the throne? You know, if you had to pick which member of the Trinity would, uh, would we want to put up there on the throne? And we've said more about this previously, but um, I would just like to suggest that to the depictions of God in the Old Testament, that we could make a, an excellent case for almost all of these representing the, the Son of God, known later by the name Jesus. So who was it that was at the burning bush? Of course, the, the words to Moses is, God said, I am who I am. You must tell them, the one who is called I am has sent me to you. That's his name, the I am. And so what was so offensive, remember when Jesus talked with the people, is he told them, you will die in your sins if you do not believe that I am who I am. When you lift up the Son of the Man, man you will know that I am who I am. And before Abraham was born, I am. Okay, and his audience knew exactly what he was saying. And this was blasphemy. Because when he said that, they picked up stones to throw at him. Okay, so who is the I am? The, the, the God we see in human form, that was the God talking to Moses at the burning bush. Okay, and, uh, and I just I find this passage really interesting. You know, the mob has come out, they've captured Jesus, or they're coming to get him. Judas went to the garden, taking with him Roman soldiers, some temple guards, they were armed. And here, Jesus knew everything that was going to happen to him, so he stepped forward and asked them, who is it you're looking for? Jesus of Nazareth, they answered. And Jesus' reply is, I am he. This is King James here, but the he is supplied. He literally just said, I am. And Judas the traitor was standing there with them. And when Jesus said to them, I am, they moved back and fell to the ground. Okay, his, his words were not just, yeah, I am Jesus. More significant than that, I am. He literally declared himself to be the son of God there in the garden, and they collapsed. 
Okay, and just uh, uh, one more here on this here. Paul, talking about the people wandering through the, the wilderness, said that those people, they drank from the spiritual rock that went with them, and that rock was Christ himself. So we've got to involve Jesus here in the entire Old Testament. Okay, so, um, and just, you know, the, the angel of the Lord, I mean, God's condescension here in the Old Testament I find pretty remarkable. The angel of the Lord came to Hagar, and what did she say? I've seen God face to face. He wrestled with Jacob. What did Jacob say? I've seen God face to face. Moses, Gideon, first it's the description, the angel of the Lord. And then you just read on to the story, and he's talking with God. So, again, God's condescension here to be referred to as an angel of the Lord. But we shouldn't be surprised by this because, what is he in the New Testament? Man of Nazareth, the son of man, a place where can any good thing come from Nazareth? Okay, so he's uh, sometimes depicted here as an angel, as a man, okay, but it's, it's God all the way through. Okay, the one other small point before we get something to meteor here, that Ezekiel's response to the vision is uh, typical of what many people in the Bible, when they see the glory of God, uh, how they react. Okay, he collapsed. And the voice said to him, mortal man, stand up. I want to talk to you. And while the voice was speaking, God's spirit entered me and raised me to my feet. And so he encouraged Ezekiel. And it's the same kind of thing. And just uh, real quickly on this, John in Revelation saw God in all of his glory. When I saw him, I fell down at his feet like a dead man. And same thing. He placed his right hand on me and said, don't be afraid. I, I like that um, here when, when people encounter this and they're shocked and they collapse, that God right away is encouraging. Don't be afraid. And here he encouraged Ezekiel. And even more dramatic here is Daniel. Okay, he encountered God in his glory, and when that happened, I fell to the ground unconscious and lay there face downward. And then a hand took hold of me, raised me to my hands and knees. I was still trembling. And the angel said to me, Daniel, God loves you. Stand up and listen carefully. So it's the same thing, that uh, God's uh, encouragement to people in this uh, moment of panic. Um, I, I just find that kind of neat. Okay, but now let's... Uh, I think if we're going to try to understand uh, Ezekiel, if we're allowed to do this, I'd like to, to parallel this a little bit with the vision in John. I mean, no doubt, all of you, if you turn to your Bibles and you read Ezekiel chapter 1, and you turn over to Revelation, if you have one with footnotes, you'll see lots and lots of links that go back and forth between Ezekiel and John. They're, they're very much complementary. And I guess the question is, if, if you had to uh, focus in on one part of Ezekiel's vision, what would you like to know more about? We'd like an expansion of description of the wheels, the eyes, the darting torches, the living creatures. You want to know what the uh, eagle's face is? What part would you want to focus in on? And John's vision is, is very clear. We've got to try to find the biggest lens I could here. He's going to focus in on God. Okay, so uh, we did this a little bit when we talked about Isaiah, but uh, this is an amazing uh, vision here as well. So this is after the seven churches, and then at this point I had another vision, and I saw an open door in heaven, and the voice that sounded like a trumpet, which I'd heard speaking to me before, said, come up here. And I put in yellow all of the things that we've read in Ezekiel that are also used in Revelation. And there in heaven was a throne. Okay, we had a throne uh, in Ezekiel with someone sitting on it. 
and his face gleams. Remember the, the vision in Ezekiel. This is a very bright being. Like such precious stones as jasper and carnelian, and all around the throne there was a rainbow. Same thing we saw in Ezekiel, the color of an emerald. Okay, in a circle around the throne were 24 other thrones, on which were seated 24 elders, dressed in white and wearing crowns of gold. From the throne came flashes of lightning. We had flashes of lightning in the Ezekiel vision, rumblings and peals of thunder. In front of the throne, seven lighted torches were burning. Okay, we had torches in uh, the Ezekiel vision as well, which are the seven spirits of God. Here they're defined, the seven spirits of God. Each one of the four living creatures had six wings. Well, they had four wings in Ezekiel. And now the wings are covered with eyes. Okay? The wheels were covered with eyes in Ezekiel. So there's some slight differences here. Inside and out. And day and night they never stop singing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty who was, who is, and who is to come. Okay, so I think this is, as we read on, we're going to try to use this to clarify something, if possible, in Ezekiel. So the four living creatures sing songs of glory and honor and thanks to the one who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever. And when they do so, the 24 elders fall down before the one who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They throw their crowns down in front of the throne and say, Our Lord and God, you are worthy to receive glory, honor, and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were given existence and life. Then I saw a scroll in the right hand of the one who's sitting on the throne. Okay, now this is uh, an entirely something new here. And there was writing on the inside and the outside of the scroll, and it was sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel who shouted with a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals on this scroll and open it? And one problem with reading the Bible is if, if you've read this 20 times, well, it takes, there's no surprise. You know that he's gonna have a scroll and someone's gonna ask who's worthy. But if we, if we allow ourselves to be surprised and try to imagine we're reading this for the first time, you know, we've got God in all of his glory described as sitting on the throne and he's holding a scroll and it seems very counterintuitive that someone would ask who is worthy to open it. You know, if you were there, you'd almost uh, blush. Well, I mean, God's worthy. He's holding it, let him open it. Okay, so why would you even ask a question? Who is worthy to open the scroll? Okay, but it gets worse. No one in heaven, as God is holding the scroll, no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll and read it. And then I began to weep bitterly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll and read it as God is holding the scroll. Okay, it's very unusual. Okay, but then of course something very dramatic happens. But one of the 24 elders said to me, stop weeping. Look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the heir to David's throne, has won the victory. He is worthy to open the scroll and its seven seals. And then I saw a lamb that looked as if it had been slaughtered but it was now standing between the throne and the four living beings and among the 24 elders. He stepped forward and took the scroll from the right hand of the one sitting on the throne. Now, what does that mean? Uh, I would say this revelation is a symbolic book. It invites us to understand the meaning here and, and Ezekiel is, is part of the basis for that. Uh, does that mean that the father got off the throne and was replaced by the son? What is this actually describing here for us? 
And uh, is the imagery here the lamb, as if it had been slaughtered? Is, it, is that just supposed to mean, oh, it was talking about Jesus? Okay, or is there a very important meaning? A slaughtered lamb. This actually can be translated the violently slaughtered lamb. Well, there's some questions, and let's read on. We'll try to answer them. So, as he did so, the four living creatures and the 24 fell down before the lamb. They sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to break open its seals, for you were killed, and by your sacrificial death, you bought for God's God people from every tribe, language, nation, and race. Again I looked, and I heard angels, thousands and millions of them. They stood around the throne, the four living creatures, and the elders, and sang in a loud voice, the lamb who was killed is worthy to receive power, wealth, wisdom, and strength, honor, glory, and praise. So we have angels, thousands and millions of them, but more than that, and I heard every creature in heaven, on earth, in the world below, and in the sea, all living beings in the universe, and they were singing to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor, glory and might forever and ever. So um, I suggested this um, when we went through Isaiah, but I think, um, sure, we should spend some time here trying to understand as much as we can about these living creatures, the 24 elders, but perhaps what, what we're supposed to get out of this partly is we have this description of a, clearly an amplification of praise. Initially, we have God on the throne holding a scroll. He's surrounded by the four living creatures, the 24 elders. No one's worthy to open the scroll. And then the violently slaughtered lamb is worthy. Okay, and what happens at that moment? Now we have a new song. Okay, does this mean, again, literally they, they just are singing a new hymn in heaven? Or no, this is a, this is a new understanding. This is a new song. And now we have angels, millions of them praising God, and we have every living creature in the universe singing. So I, I would like to understand this as, um, here we, yes, God in all of his glory, God is all powerful, absolutely. But what is happening here is we have a, an understanding about who God is in the person of Jesus Christ, the violently slaughtered lamb. And that understanding about God is, as revealed by Jesus, it, it has a very profound effect. Okay, yes, God is all-powerful, but when, when we see that revelation of God's character, notice a new song, and now we have this incredible amplification uh, in praise. So several people have um, uh, struggled, I think, a little bit more with this vision in Revelation, Here's a book by uh, Eugene Boring, and he said the, the act of the scroll being handed to the slaughtered lamb does not mean that the throne of the universe is occupied by two persons, okay? But that God, the ruler of the universe, has functionally defined his rule with his act in Jesus. Revelation's Christology, like New Testament Christology, generally is not a response to the question, who is Jesus, but who is God? Jesus does not replace God here or anywhere else in Revelation. God rules but he has definitively manifested his rule in Jesus, who turned out not to be the lion who devoured our enemies, but the lamb who was slain. Okay, and a couple of other quotes that I like here. Uh, Anthony Hansen, Christ and the saints conquer by dying, Satan and the powers of evil by physical force. So the, the image of the slaughtered lamb here, it's not just an identification, we are now talking about Jesus. It is the, the means and the methods 
here that God has used, self-sacrificial love rather than physically conquering. And finally, uh, this one, I, I love this quote, omnipotence is not to be understood as the power of unlimited coercion, but as the power of infinite persuasion, the invincible power of self-negating, self-sacrificial love. Is it powerful? I mean, we see it in the, in the vision, in Revelation, don't we? That the, the, this kind of power, that the effect that that had amplified uh, throughout the universe, uh, much greater than any physical force or power. Okay, and then finally one more here by Elton Trueblood, that the historic Christian doctrine of the divinity of Christ does not simply mean that Jesus is like God. It is far more radical than that. It means that God is like Jesus. Okay, so I think um, here, if we come back here to Ezekiel, I said uh, in the beginning that uh, Ezekiel talks so much about God's holy name, his character. And uh, we might say, well, was that ever in question? Uh, yes, it was in question. How, how clear was God's character during the time of Ezekiel? Uh, it was not clear. And in fact, even by God's own admission, now this is the Message Bible, a, a paraphrase, but you can read this in any translation, which it would suggest that God's character at this time was, was kind of a mess, at least in the eyes of uh, the world. Here's a description. God would say, wherever they went, they gave me a bad name, talking about his people. People said, these are God's people, but they got kicked off his land. I suffered much pain over my holy reputation, which the people of Israel blackened in every country they entered. And isn't this the case? I mean, we read the Old Testament, and we read all of these stories, and, uh, you know, we get sometimes troubled about uh, what kind of a person God is based on those Old Testament stories. Hey, God did take a big risk with his reputation here in the Old Testament. Okay, which the people of Israel blackened in every country they entered. Therefore, tell Israel, I'm not doing this for you, Israel. I'm doing it for me, to save my character, my holy name, which you've blackened in every country where you've gone. I'm going to put my great and holy name on display, the name that has been ruined in so many countries, the name that you blackened wherever you went. Okay, ultimately, when, when did all of this happen? You know, God came as a human being and revealed God to be very much different in character than I would say all previous notions of what God was like. So what can we say about the one on the throne? Here in Ezekiel, I think it did meet a need in that time. And the need in that time is God doesn't seem involved. God reveals himself to be involved in Ezekiel. God doesn't seem powerful. That vision reveals a God of power. And if your thought was, you know, it's all just chaos from here. The vision reveals a God um, who's, who's still powerful, still on the throne, the wheels within the wheels and all of that would reinforce some stability. But if we allow the book of Revelation here to, you know, add meaning to all of this, is God still involved? Well, again, in Jesus, the slaughtered lamb, uh, we see God involved to an ultimate degree. Okay, not just powerful off on a distant throne, but... Again, getting in the mix. We see, is God powerful? Yes, God is all-powerful, but his ultimate power is his self-sacrificial love. And is our world merely chaos? Well, Revelation is more nuanced here. Yes, our world is chaotic. Okay, the, God doesn't uh, promise to fix everything here on this planet. 
In fact, it seems to suggest in Revelation, yeah, it's going to get worse before it gets better. But at least we perhaps have some reason to follow the Lamb in Revelation. Notice the people here in Revelation 12. They won the victory over him by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony. And what is the attitude? They didn't love their life so much that they refused to give it up. Isn't that the same essence you know, that we see here in the, the slaughtered lamb? Greatest example of love, lay down your life for someone else. Now, this would be too much to ask, I think, back in this time in Ezekiel. You know, imagine the vision of Ezekiel, and we saw on top, of, on the throne, a slaughtered lamb. Would that be very encouraging to the people in that time? No, God met a need, I think, at that time. But for us, after the cross, uh, perhaps we can uh, begin to put this together in a more meaningful way. Okay, let's pray. Dear Father, thank you so much for a, a book which um, uh, certainly is difficult to understand, but help us as we try to put it together, especially as we um, always try to put Jesus front and center uh, in all of our theology, uh, that you would clarify things about who you are, that we would put your trust in you, and that we would reveal more uh, lamb-like qualities 